Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek. And with me this week is Sean Karnickian, our special guest co-host. Hi, Sean. I'm not a special guest. I've done a lot of these, way more than I thought. We've done like more than 50 of these at this point. And I'm fortunately this time I'm not physically with Brian. We're working remotely because of the uh, coronavirus scare that we're all embroiled in now. But, uh, you know, we're still trying to keep you entertained and keep you informed. And we're doing mini law school. And nothing is more entertaining and nothing is more informative than us talking about recent civil cases that impact your practice. And today we're dealing with um, certain matters, I believe, with civil procedure. Is that right, Sean? It's all civil procedure. It's back to law school, back to basics. But this time it's a little bit more nuanced, but they all have to do with procedural issues. And we're going to be dealing with cases. uh, You'll tell us about the cases in just a moment, but we're going to be dealing with two cases that involve the hearsay rule. And we're going to be dealing with a couple of other civil procedure issues. And if you love civil procedure, you are going to love this episode. So it's a little bit of a hybrid then. It's some civil procedure. It's some evidence. First, we're going to cover a couple of cases. We're going to cover one case coming out of the second DCA that has to do with sister state money judgments and the principle of res judicata. So exciting stuff there. Then we're going to talk about the PG&E fire cases and attorney fees and when something in a settlement agreement is appealable, when an order Uh, or an allocation is appealable. Next, we're going to talk about the past recollection recorded exception. Or or actually, first, we might talk about a unique uh, exception to the hearsay rule that we bet a lot of people didn't know about. And last, we're going to talk about the past recollection recorded uh, exception to the hearsay rule. Sean, everything you said is 100% true, but we're doing it in exactly the reverse order. Reverse order? Wow, okay. Just for some fun today. So uh, first of all, tell people where they can find us. So they can find us online at kbklawyers.com. And we put on seminars regularly. We do this all the time. So we'd love to hear your feedback. If you have complaints or questions, just shoot us an email or get in touch with us on social media, KBK Lawyers. Particularly if you have complaints about Sean. I hear them all the time. So I'd love to hear yours. We're going to write a book about that someday. All right. The first thing we're going to cover today is People versus Royal. Yes, a rare criminal case. But one thing you can find is sometimes you find the best cases about the rules of evidence in courtrooms from criminal cases. I also confess that this is the reason why my uh, non-lawyer friends always ask me about criminal cases, because they find the facts of criminal cases so much more salacious than the kind of stuff we do on a day-to-day basis, even though I always tell them that the kind of stuff we do actually impacts normal, ordinary Californians much more. So um, this case The facts in this case, very quickly, Sean and I will go through. The facts are more interesting than they are relevant to our discussion about this particular exception of the hearsay rule. Um, But this case involves a murder. It does. This case involves a victim named RJ, who in 2007 was found lying partially in the bushes with parts of his brain and skull fragments scattered in the road by his feet. So he didn't make it. The, the crime involved here is murder. Right. He did not make it. Uh, and he died from a shotgun blast to his head, which can be fatal. Now, Most of the time. we know about RJ is that his nickname was Snake. He occasionally engaged in minor scams. And before his death, he was using meth and losing weight. So what do we learn from that, Sean? 
meth can help you lose weight. Good. Now, the case involves one of the witnesses, LN, right? And what did LN do for a living? Um, I'm not sure what Ellen was. I don't know what kind of a productive member of society she was. She was a, she was occasionally a prostitute. Okay. She also was a fact witness. And what we know about her is that the police finally interviewed her in 2013. And if the murder, this here's a test for Sean. If the murder occurred in 2007 and she was interviewed in 2013, how many years went by? That's like six years almost. Very good. So she, at that time, her statement was taken and she admitted that the defendant in this case confessed to the crime and apparently admitted other things. So this is a long criminal appeal with a lot of different issues in it. But the the gist that we want to talk today about is a single exception to the hearsay rule. And that exception is the past recollection recorded exception. And there's a number of elements for that exception to apply. First of all, the big one is that the statement that you're seeking to introduce has to be admissible if made by the declarant or whoever's making the statement. Otherwise, if they were to walk into a courtroom and say that, would it be admissible? So that's the first threshold issue. But then there's more elements. That's right. That's a key threshold issue. So the next, so the other four issues now that you hoops you got to jump through is number one, was it made at a time when the facts recorded were actually occurred or was fresh in their memory? So it has to have been made either contemporaneously or relatively shortly thereafter. Number two, Sean? Number two is that they wrote the statement themselves, so they maybe were taking notes or something, or it was recorded by somebody else at the time the statements were made. And number three, the statement... um, is offered after the witnesses con- the witness confirms that he or she actually made that statement. Right. And number four, it, the, the record itself where the statement is contained has to be authenticated. So if it's a policeman writing it down, they have to come in and say, yeah, I wrote it down. That's my record. And then and only then when you jump through those really five hoops, can it be read into the record as evidence in the case? So here's the problem in this case. There was a six-year gap between the time of the event that the witness is reporting and the actual um, the actual uh, uh, recorded statement. Does that make sense? Yeah, and the courts the court acknowledges that they say that the six-year gap is a lot longer than any other gap that we've seen in the cases that the parties here cite to in their appellate briefing on this. So they acknowledge this is a lot longer. There, there's some cases that allow for a, a three-year gap that didn't disqualify the statement. Um, so that's that's the longest that they're able to cite to. But but six years, we haven't seen that. Right. And so they're saying, as a matter of law, six years is too long, and it can't qualify for the prior recorded statement kind of um, uh, exception to the hearsay rule. Now, what's important about this case also, though, is the rules of evidence are almost always whatever the trial judge decides they are. Because in this case, although the court found that this was a hearsay statement not subject to any exception and therefore not admissible, they found it was harmless error. And that goes to the bigger issue, which I learned when I was a law student a long time ago, is that the rules of evidence are generally set by the judge at the time and often not disturbed on appeal 
uh, except in exceptional circumstances would have actually overturn a case or in this case, a conviction. Hey, but I think this is a, it, it, an important rule to know the past recollection recorded because it, none of us are doing criminal law. I mean, some might be, uh, but it comes up in civil cases all the time. So it's good to refresh yourself about this uh, hearsay exception. It's remarkable when you try cases, particularly against people that don't try a lot of cases. It's remarkable how they just don't know the rules of evidence. Okay, next case, McDermott Ranch versus Connolly Ranch, also a California Court of Appeal decision, also, um, uh, not also, rather, this is out of the third DCA, out of San Joaquin, uh, and involves some really interesting facts. Yeah, so uh, this arises out of a property dispute, uh, but the real estate transaction that's at the center of this occurred in 1958. That's a long, long time ago, and this appeal just came down. So in uh, 2013, one of the parties, McDermott, sued to quiet title. What is that, Brian? Uh, an action to quiet title is when you're trying to take possession of a real property, for example, and you're trying to quiet or otherwise eliminate all other claims to title. So in this case, the issue was a, a 19, I think a 1958 um resolution of a, of lot lines, obviously in, in part of California that at that time was incredibly rural, probably still is fairly rural, but um, the lot lines were not, you know, clearly defined. This isn't like the lot line between Shant's house and the poor people who live next door to him. <laughs> um, I should have been unfortunate. I don't mean to say poor yeah. derogatory way. The unfortunate people who live next door to you, right? Because they have to live next door to me and deal with me. But no, this is this is actually super high stakes because the 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 demarcation of that line um, ultimately resulted in one of the parties, Connolly, uh, being awarded fifty eight acres under the uh, uh, in a uh, bench trial in two thousand sixteen. So fifty eight acres is at stake here, um, and the piece of evidence, one of the pieces of evidence that was at issue in the case that the court relied upon was a statement that was made a very long time ago. Do you want to tell us about that, Brian? Right. I mean, this is classic hearsay. On its face, it's classic hearsay. It's the 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 plaintiff in the case, or the representative of the plaintiff, was Mark Connolly. And Mark Connolly was able to testify about statements his father made to him decades ago about what happened in 1958 when when Mark was one years old. So Mark wasn't there. Mark wasn't able to testify about what happened in 1958. All he's able to say is, my father told me that. This is the rest of it. My father explained to me that. And that was the testimony. And on its face, classic hearsay, right? Can't come in. Yeah, it's not It's not an admission. The guy that's asserting it, it's, he stands to benefit from his assertion. It's purely, if you look at it on its face, it's a state, out-of-court statement, really out-of-court statement, assert, uh, offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. I mean, By the party who made the, effectively made the statement, or his son at least in this case. But what the court said, and we'll get to why this passes muster in a minute, but what the court said is, Robert, who made the statement to his son, had personal knowledge. He had died, and death makes one unavailable. That's a, a criteria. Uh, uh, death is one of the criteria for unavailability. Oh, okay. 
they were right, and they were made um, at a time when they were dealing with the, the specific issue, and it it the judge said it coordinated well with the other testimony in the case and found in favor of Connolly and against McDermott. And so McDermott appeals and says, that's hearsay. And this is where it gets interesting. So, there is, no, interesting? It's very interesting. There's an evidence code section, 1323, that specifically allows for the introduction of hearsay statements um, made when the declarant is unavailable and the declarant had sufficient knowledge of the subject when it has to do with circumstances such as to indicate um, the uh, over-property disputes is what I'm trying to say. And so that is the, the, the grounds are if you've got a statement and it particularly pertains to these kind of land line disputes in real property, it's not made inadmissible by the fact that it was made by a party, as long as that person's no longer available, and as long as it's recited by somebody and it appears trustworthy on its face, and that's what the court found it to be. Now, why is this really interesting? Because this comes from actually our English history of property law, which is intertwined in any real property. And um, this was a rule long ago in England um, there are old cases about this that pertain to the ability to testify about where land is, where lot lands are. And that was, of course, important to the English who were very interested, the gentry who were very interested in their lot lines, in their land. And that's where so much of our property law comes from. And at this moment, I realize that I may be the only person actually interested in the history of this. But it is rather interesting to me. And it's super It's super narrow. It has to do specifically, per, per the code, it has to do with the boundary of land. Not like, you know, not necessarily the size or some fact about the land, the boundary, where the lot lines are. Because and, lot lines were incredibly important to the British and have been incredibly important in our history and our development, both back east and in the west. Yeah. I just I find it strange that it's not something that's really focused on when you're learning evidence in law school. I, at least, you know, I don't profess to know everything from evidence. Uh, I, I had Stan Goldman, who's an excellent professor. Uh, but but I don't think this is something that there was any focus on. If not, maybe it wasn't even mentioned. No. And, and um, it's a What do you remember it from law school? I know that was a long time ago, but but all kidding aside, do you remember it? Well, we didn't have books back then. <laughs> it was just an oral history of the law. Last interesting fact of this case, though, was there was a request for admission, and as a result of the losing party's failure to admit the truth of the request for admission, they secured, I know, thirty or $40,000 in attorney fees and probably more after appeal, right? Right, yeah. Let's go, Sean, to our next case, the penultimate case today. Blizzard Energy versus Burn Schaefer's. Yeah, this is a super interesting case that has to do with res judicata. It arises out of a dispute between Blizzard Energy Inc. and Mr. Schaefer's. Uh, Mr. Schaefer's at some point got into an, a, a deal with Blizzard Energy Inc. where he was going to build or someone was going to build a factory in Kansas where they're going to process rubber tires into some kind of fuel. They had a dispute uh, over this deal. And ultimately, Blizzard brought a lawsuit against Schaefer's in Kansas. 
And at the same time, Schaefer's brought a lawsuit against Blizzard in Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara County Court. Uh, the Santa Barbara County Court case was thrown out for forum non-convenes. And ultimately, the Kansas case ended up in a judgment in favor of Schaefer uh, of Blizzard Energy for $3.82 million. Again, Schaefer? Blizzard took that judgment, and, uh, and, and then there was an appeal pending in Kansas. While that appeal was pending, Blizzard took that judgment, brought it over here to San Luis, San Luis Obispo, and tried to enforce the judgment in California. So that's where this dispute arises. They didn't try. They actually did. They did. Yeah. Sorry. They did enforce it. And so, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so, so the first issue that the court looks at here is whether or not that judgment is enforceable. And the court says that it's absolutely, um, uh, it's absolutely enforceable under the sister state money judgment act that lets you take a judgment from one state and enforce it in another state. Now, now there are some exceptions. This is generally uh, we're talking over each other, Sean. Go ahead. This is generally um, speaking a uniform act from state to state. And the principle is that somebody goes to one state and secures a judgment. Um, and then the person has assets to enforce on in another state. They don't have to relitigate the whole case. And that's why there's this sister state enforcement act. Um, and that's exactly what they brought it under. And uh, the, that was the issue here. So, Schaefer's is arguing you can't enforce it in California. It's not fair. Uh, he had a number of reasons why they should disregard the judgment and you shouldn't follow it. Um, and the court laid out the only defenses really that exist to enforcement of a sister state judgment, right? Number right. one, the judgment is not final and it's not unconditional, right? Right. Number two, the judgment was obtained by extrinsic fraud. Three, the judgment was rendered in excess of jurisdiction of the court that entered the judgment. Four, the judgment's not enforceable in the state where it was rendered. And five, um, the, the plaintiff is guilty of some kind of misconduct. And I guess number six would be that the judgment's already been paid, so you don't get a double recovery. That's an obvious one, so, yeah. You know, fundamental basic protections for the party who is having the judgment sought against them, but you do not, it's under the principles of race judicata. You don't relitigate the case. You don't get to relitigate. And over here, uh, they were, uh, Schaefer was arguing, well, the standard for a fraud claim is different in California and it's, it's a different standard in Kansas, but it doesn't matter. That's the whole point of the, of the res judicata principle and this sister state money judgment act. You don't get to relitigate, relitigate it unless it falls into one of those buckets. And it didn't here. Um, right. The appellant, the appellant, meaning Schaefer, also tried to argue that he was tricked into dismissing his case in Santa Barbara, and the court said, "No, you weren't tricked into it. It was dismissed on the grounds of forum non-convenes." Right. And then he tried to argue that the the bond or undertaking that it was asked to post to delay enforcement was unfair because it was 150 percent of the actual judgment, which is consistent with California law. So he lost, lost, lost. And then lost again. Not a and good day. Not a good day. Not a good day. And now we go to our final case for the day, which arises out of the PG&E San Bruno fire cases. And Shant, have you ever heard of a company called PG&E? I think they're like a little startup that's trying to do some type of renewable energy thing. 
Um, they're, they're a giant utility that serves uh, most of Northern California. They're, they're typically responsible for various mass disasters. In this case, they were responsible for the San Bruno uh, fire. Right. The San Bruno fire happened in 2010. It happened when an entire neighborhood exploded. Um, there were wrongful death, personal injury lawsuits, property damage lawsuits. It was horrific. And as a result of that, a number of um, established uh, respected law firms filed a shareholder derivative lawsuit against PG&E and ultimately settled that case for, I believe, $90 million. And then I can't tell from reading the case if it was an additional $25 million for attorney fees or the $25 million was part of the $90 million. But irrelevant to our discussion, other than oh, that's a whole lot of attorney fees. Yeah, and the attorney fees were, since there were so many different sets of counsel involved, the lawyers, I think, all got together and decided they'd cooperate and they'd have a panel of special masters appointed to allocate the attorney fees, and then the court would just simply approve that amount. And the parties all agreed, meaning that the actual plaintiffs all agreed, signed agreements, that they are submitting to that allocation and that the determination made is going to be non-appealable and final. Right. So. Uh that happened. The settlement was approved. The $25 million was approved. The $25 million was all allocated. And guess what happened as a result of the allocation? Someone wasn't happy about the allocation. Someone was unhappy. That's correct. Someone was unhappy. So somebody filed an appeal. And the gist of the appeal, without minimizing it, but I think we can minimize it, is that um, the language about the appeal being final and non-appealable only appeared in one sentence in the agreement, which yeah. read, determination and allocation shall be final and non-appealable. That, that was it. And so the, the party who didn't get their fair share of attorney fees, in their opinion, thought that um, that wasn't fair. And the court says in a very, what I referred to previously when I was talking to Brian about this, as a sort of shallow analysis, not that it's not thorough, it's just it's very straightforward. That is enough. One sentence is enough. You're bound by that sentence. They cite to another case called McConnell in which a very similar situation arose, same type of, same type of case, shareholder derivative suit, and the parties there agreed the whatever decision the court makes about a different issue there is non-appealable. And the court said the word non-appealable or shall not be appealed means it shall not be appealed. It means it's non-appealable. It doesn't matter that it's limited to one sentence. There doesn't have to be a thorough explanation of what that means. What's interesting about this case, though, was that this wasn't an appeal on the merits. It was a motion to dismiss, and the motion was granted. Um, and the court said, look, it's possible that you can waive your appeal and later challenge that, but there's really only a few conditions. One, the attorney, you have to demonstrate the attorney didn't actually have authority to waive the right to appeal. That's one. Two, the waiver must be expressed and not implied, so it has to be clear and unambiguous, right? And number three, the waiver wasn't improperly coerced by a trial judge. So those are the three grounds. Now, I would say that if you're in the position where you're waiving the right to appeal, um, you better make sure that you had your client's authority and that it's clear or the other side had the authority. And I would put that on the record. And then the, the, frankly, the liability and the burden go, shifts to the lawyer who says he or she had the client's authority. 
uh, because if they didn't, they're in trouble. So it happens. It's, it's important to keep in mind, you can't waive every part of uh, the appeal when it comes to a class action settlement. It's important to keep in mind this waiver of appeal was limited to the allocation of how the attorney fees would be split. It wasn't the amount of fees that the lawyers are entitled to or how much the class is getting or something. You can't waive those appeals. Those are those are things that are non-waivable, I believe. But but this is something that you can waive. So it didn't fall into any of those buckets of exceptions Brian mentioned. And uh, that's it. That's our cases for today. Uh, I thought they were really interesting. And we hope you come back and join us for another one of these civil action podcast episodes where we talk about what Shot and I think are really interesting cases in the law, which probably could put to sleep um, our prospective spouses and significant others. But um, we hope you come back. Thank you for tuning in. Check us out again online at kbklawyers.com. Please give us your feedback and we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.